Hello, and welcome back to the Father-Daughter Book Club. I'm one of your hosts, Kalia, the daughter. And I am the other host, Chris. I am the father. And today, we will be discussing The Supernaturalist by Owen Colfer, and it is a New York Times bestseller. And this book was published on October 19th, 2004. So again, before we can continue on with this conversation we have to remind you there will be spoilers every single episode i know we say this but there always will be spoilers yeah we like to do deep dives into these books so if you want to follow along with us and not get spoiled by what we're talking about press pause now go get your copy of the supernaturalist and finish reading it before you listen to this podcast don't worry we'll still be here when you get back And we'd love to share our thoughts with you. And if you have any thoughts to share with us, please do so by going to fatherdaughterbookclub.com. And on every episode, there will be a new comment section. So comment down below any other books, too. So before we get going here, Kalia, anything else that you want to mention? Um, no. Let's just get right on into it. All right, so let me... um, quickly read a synopsis that I pulled. I can't actually remember where I pulled this one from, but it's this quick one. So it says, In futuristic satellite city, 14-year-old Cosmo Hill teams up with three other people who share his ability to see supernatural creatures. And together they determine the nature and purpose of the swarming blue parasites that are plaguing the city. Uh, Before we we get into... Oh, go ahead. Can I read this one? Because I actually think I like this one better. I didn't read that one because it's long. Okay. But, here it is. In the future, in a place called Satellite City, Cosmo Hill enters the world, unwanted by his parents. He's sent to the Clarissa Frayne Institute for Parentally Challenged Boys, freight class. Here, the boys are put to work by the state, testing highly dangerous products. Cosmo realizes he must get away and escapes with the help of the supernaturalists. A group of kids who have the same special abilities as Cosmo. They can see supernatural parasites, creatures that feed on the life force of humans. The supernaturalists patrol the city at night, hunting the parasites in hopes of saving what is left of humanity in Satellite City. But soon, they find themselves caught in a web far more complicated than they'd imagined. And they discovered a horrifying secret that will force them to question everything they believe in that is a really good description yeah Uh, and it goes into more detail than most back of the book synopsis get into and uh, i'm I'm glad it it kind of explains where cosmo who cosmo is where he comes from and where he's going Mm -hmm. um so before we get into the nitty-gritty we're we're going to frame the today's discussion a little bit differently than we've done in the past um today we want to talk about the major themes of the book because I thought that it had some very interesting themes to talk about. And then, you know, if there any, if there's any way that we can relate those themes to our own personal lives, we'll do so. So kind of uh, make this discussion a little more personal than our previous ones have been. And a little more to get to know about us because most of the time we just talk about more of the book, not us. Yeah. So this way we're connecting both. You're right. So we won't get terribly personal. We won't no. share our deepest, darkest secrets. But hopefully we'll... That we'll, we have never shared a soul. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully we'll be able to take some lessons from the book and apply them to ourselves and make some parallels to things that are happening in our own lives that we saw in this book. Um, but before we get into that, Kalia, I did have a couple of questions. Well, a couple of things to talk about before we did that. Um, all right. About this book. So first of all, what genre do you think this book is? I think this is sci-fi, dystopian, fantasy, all mixed together, kind of. Yeah, all of that. So it's obviously science fiction. It's it's set in the future. It says it's set uh, like sometime in the third millennium. It doesn't give a specific no. year. So that's definitely uh, science fiction because a lot of the things that they talk about, the weapons that they have, the... Are not around today. <laughs> Not the at satellite all. that controls the city, which is why it's called Satellite City. Um, the vehicles that they drive. There's just a, a bunch of stuff yeah. about it being uh, science fiction. 
uh, fantasy, definitely because we're talking about supernatural creatures. Yeah. Um, so that certainly fulfills the fantasy. And then dystopian, you brought up that, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about the dystopian genre. Um, what do you know about that genre? Well, for me, dystopia is set in the future, and it's kind of like our world has fallen and there's a new world that has been brought up. And I actually like a lot of these books. And there's kind of like a mystery behind it. And there, it's also kind of like kind of dark and mysterious. Yeah, so dystopia, uh, specifically dystopian literature, is a genre. Here, let me just read this. I found this online. It says, it's a genre of fictional writing used to explore social and political structures in a dark nightmare world. And that's the really important part. So, it's uh, not necessarily that the world has fallen, but, oh. but just that um, the conditions of the world are far more dire than what we experience today. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, it can take place after maybe a war or some sort of virus that infected yeah. everybody and wiped out a whole bunch of the population or in this case it's the world is in the state that it's in um it primarily we'll get to this theme in the later yeah. on in the conversation but primarily due to like pollution and yeah and treating the environment poorly. i noticed that whenever i read like these dystopian books or like sci-fi books it's always placed in the future and it's always like a like our world is gone, and it's like kind of like like old old times. And then this new futuristic world is has like this new controlling thing, and it's not ruled by people or stuff like that. And I noticed that I actually find myself reading a lot of these books surprisingly. I, I don't know. This, the, the dystopian genre has really taken off lately. Yeah. Um, specifically with books like The Hunger Games mm -hmm. and Divergent um, and a bunch of other books that pushed this dystopian society genre. onto like the young adult crowd. Yeah. So now, especially with so readers of your age, there's a lot of material out there. And That's I actually and find myself liking these books. And I, when I was younger, I never even heard of it. Right. And I think they're, they're really useful because, as this description says, it's used to explore social and political structures. Um, so sometimes uh, examining our current society is difficult to do in literature. But when you imagine a world that's vastly different than ours... It's, it's easier. easier to talk about a different a different political structure than what we have here. Like we have a democracy now, but what if eventually the United States falls into a tyranny or um, I don't. a des despotism or something something different, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's easier to do that when you you deal with the future, future. and stuff like that as opposed to current yeah. times, right? So I think that's uh, we talked about themes and and actually the dystopian nature of this world that Cosmo and our other protagonists live in is a big part of what's happening and, and who the people are, why they are the way they are, and, and things like that. And also, can I just say, like, the main characters in this book? Sure. So the main characters in this book are Cosmo, Stefan, Ditto, and Mona. And they are the supernaturalists? Yes. Whom this book is named for? Mm-hmm. Cosmo is 14. He's a runaway from an orphanage. Yeah. And we learn that orphanages in particularly Satellite City... I don't like them. No. They tend to use... Uh, what, you said it... Clarissa Frayne. Well, that's the name of the orphanage, but in the... Freight class. No. What, what does the Institute do with the orphans? They abuse them, kind of. The boys are put to work by the state testing highly dangerous products. products. And 
those dangerous products threaten those boys' lives. They have a short life expectancy. Yeah, to the point where Cosmo says they don't live beyond 15, 15 years old generally. And he only has 12 months to get out of that place if he wants to live. And so this whole book uh, begins its arc with Cosmo escaping the Institute. With his other friend Ziploc, who sadly passes away. He doesn't survive the escape, but... He's saved by the supernaturalists, and he joins their group and, and starts fighting for the same things that they fight for, um, learning more about himself and, and what it means to have friends. Because uh, he's never been a part of a group or family before, so he's excited, but also kind of like, he even said in the book, I'm in a cartoon. Yeah, it, well, they go, <laughs> go through some pretty traumatic experiences. Um, particularly Cosmo. Yeah. With some near-death experiences. And that's why he's able to see these supernatural parasites. Because normally they appear when you happen to have a near-death experience. And his experience had to get us pretty close. So let's talk more about the parasites before we continue on with discussing the major themes. Yes. Because the parasites are very important in this book. They're a character in their own right, even though they don't speak. Um, and the parasites are these little blue creatures. Who suck the life force out of dying humans. But then we realize something else. But as you mentioned, one important thing about these parasites is that most people can't see them. No. They're invisible to most humans, except those who, it seems like those who survive near-death experiences are able to see Suddenly them. are able to see them. So Cosmo has a near-death experience and is able to see them. He survives and is able to continue to see them. The same with Stefan, who had a near-death experience when he was younger. At this stage in the book, he's about 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And Ditto. Ditto. Ditto, though, is... Completely different. He's a Bartoli baby, and one of the side effects of well, what being, is a Bartoli baby? A Bartoli baby is pretty much a baby that was exper- experimented on by Doctor Bartoli, and he's kind of he doesn't age that much. He's well, he doesn't grow very fast. Right, so at this point in the book, he's actually a full-grown man, and he's 28 he's years old, um, but he looks like a child. Yes. Because as you said, the Bartoli Effects. experiments stunted his growth. So yeah, that's what the parasites are, and the supernaturalists think these parasites are taking human beings. Um, when actually they're healing them. Right, that's something we learn later on. Not, yes. They're not healing them, but they're taking away pain. But the supernaturalists don't know this. They only know that when they see parasites, it looks like they're killing people. And so they've taken it upon themselves as being amongst the few people who can see this, the parasites. They've taken on a mission of trying to rid the city of all parasites. When actually what they're doing is just multiplying them. Yeah, they don't know that at the beginning, right? That's yeah. something that they learn later on. They don't realize at first that they're not actually killing the parasites. They're helping the parasites reproduce. Yes. But their mission, like I said, it's noble. They're trying to save the city from what they think is... Happening. Yeah. I mean, a parasite by definition is not a good thing. No. Right? So they've named them parasites because they think that they're feeding off the lives of people and that they're killing people and they want to stop the parasites. So, I mean, that's their, their ultimate mission goal. and their goal and what they're trying to accomplish and Cosmo falls in with them because he's able to see them um, one of the few like I said one of the few people who's able to see them the parasites and uh, he joins their quest so let's talk about the the major themes of the book alrighty and we discussed a little bit prior about what we thought the major themes were one major theme in this book that you pointed out bravery is bravery why do you think bravery is an important theme. Well, because what the supernaturalists are doing is a very brave thing to do. To go out and try and help their city by destroying the parasites. And most people don't even know that these parasites exist. So, 
I feel like it's very important because their whole mission is very brave. And to even think about it, like, what they're trying to do is so different and brave and and takes a lot of courage to attempt. Yeah, their cause requires them to be brave on a day-in, day-out basis because it's dangerous. So dangerous. Right? They, They find themselves in dangerous situations. So first of all, the parasites are drawn to accidents, places where people might be hurt or dying. And the supernaturalists put themselves in the middle of these accidents because they know that's where the parasites will be. Naturally, those accidents are from dangerous situations. Dangerous things happen. We also learn that they have to evade the cops and other authorities because if the the cops saw them and do what they're doing, they're probably bringing men because they're they could be breaking some laws in their mission. So they they have to they're constantly on the run, and I, as you mentioned, it requires a ton of bravery to do what they're doing. So what's a good example, a spe- more specific example okay. of of someone exhibiting bravery in the book? Cosmo, just in general, is a very since he's the main character, you see most of him being very brave. So an example, I think, uh, a good example of bravery that I thought Cosmo exhibited was when he literally used his head oh, yeah. to save his team. They ended up getting caught by Maishi Corp. And we'll talk a little bit more about Maishi Corporation as we continue. But Maishi yes. Corporation... Um, Not a very good thing. ...is the corporation who owns the satellite that controls the city. Yes. So essentially... Cities are no longer government-run. They're run by corporations. And Maishi is a powerful corporation that runs the satellite city. Yes. And they get caught by the corporation and are essentially put in this vat that if they they stay in there too long, they'll die. They're pretty much being suffocated, right? Basically. Cosmo, due to his earlier near-death experience has a metal plate in his head and he realizes that he might be able to punch through the glass of the vat if he hits it with its head with his head he's not sure he, he you know it might hurt him it might it might kill him but he, he figures the the only way it's the best option for survival so he does it he starts banging his head against the, the glass and eventually he's able to break through and break the glass and, and free. save save all of them. So I thought that was really great. Yeah. There's another instance of Cosmo when they actually went up to the satellite. Um, oh, yeah. Right? So they went up to the satellite to try and find, to see if they can use the satellite to find where the parasites live. And someone had to actually, they're, so they're in a, uh, essentially a rocket. A, we won't call it a spaceship because it's like low orbit. Isn't it kind of like spaceship kind of but they it didn't go they don't go all the way out into space it's like low orbit but it's a ship we'll call it a ship that they have to, that they fly up to the satellite and someone has to go out onto the satellite to hook up a data link that will help them find the parasites and initially it was supposed to be Stefan but they find that the suit the spacesuit is For Stefan is too small and then they try to figure out, well, who can go and do it? Mona can't do it because she's got to fly the ship. And Ditto can't do it because he's too small. <laughs> and the only person left and the is only Cosmo. Is Cosmo. So he goes out, straps on the suit, tethers himself to the ship, and, and walks out onto the satellite. He nearly died. So he could have killed himself. He, he almost killed him once. So... First of all, not only was it brave for him to walk out onto the satellite in space, but as I mentioned, he tethered himself to the ship so that he wouldn't fly off into the deep, vast ocean of space. But he gets to a point where he can't. He's he's almost there, but he's too far. So he he ends up having to unlatch himself. the, The tether isn't long enough for him to reach the place he needs to reach in order to attach the data link. So he untethers himself. And he could have killed himself, but he doesn't, thankfully. Yeah. So all of that, 
was very brave by Cosmo. Do you have a personal example of bravery? Maybe a point in your life where you thought you were brave? Well, I know that you said that just doing gymnastics is brave, but I don't really feel like it, though. I don't know why, but I just don't really feel like I'm, I've been that brave in my life, in my 11 years <laughs> of life. life. See, I think you're selling yourself short with the gymnastics thing. Gymnastics, while it's very controlled and you guys do everything you can to be safe, it's still dangerous. I mean, you're flipping upside down, you're walking on narrow beams, you're going up on bars and... Standing up and when you could pretty much fall off whenever... Yeah, you're, you're doing a lot of things that are a little dangerous. <laughs> and I think it requires a ton of bravery to flip. <laughs> Into your, like I said, one of the things you have to do is go up on that balance beam. Four inch is, beam. The thing is four inches wide, and you do a handstand on it. You do a cartwheel on it. You jump up and back walkovers. Those do are so all sorts fun. Of things that you could fall. <laughs> you could fall and get hurt. I've done that many times though. And and that's and I other, get used to it. Well, that's the other brave part, right? When you get hurt, it's easy to. To say to yourself, I'm not going to do something like that again because I got hurt before. So it requires bravery. I've done that before. I've actually done something and I was like scared so much. But I ended up doing it anyway because I knew I had to if I wanted to compete. So. That's right. So I, like I said, I think you're selling yourself short by not thinking that yourself and the other gymnasts out there in this world aren't brave. You guys are very brave to me. Okay. Another major theme of the supernaturalist trust is trust. Why is this such an important theme in the book? One of the main reasons why is because you have to trust yourself to just even go out there and do what they're doing. You have to trust yourself that you will be okay and then you know what you're doing when really you, you're shooting this thing at a parasite and you could end up pulling the wrong thing and end up killing yourself. So you have to trust yourself to know what you're doing and how to do it. And I feel like that takes lots of trust in order to do that. And one of the things that we've mentioned a few times is uh, that the supernaturalists are a team. Mm-hmm. You I have think to trust each other. And I think any time you're working with a team, trust is important in order for that team to succeed. If the teammates don't trust one another, then they'll always fail. Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, one of the main reasons why trust is important in this book. Because that team is the first group of people that Cosmo's building relationships with. And... They So he needs to be able to trust them and they have to trust him. And so not only is it important to the success of the team, but it's important to the growth of our main characters. What is a good example of trust in this book? Ditto. Well, we learned that Ditto is a Bartoli baby. But one thing that we didn't know was that he actually had powers or gifts in him. And we learn this in the book, but in his past, since he was experimented on, sometimes Bartoli would check up on them to see if he, like, had been seeing any things or had special gifts that he could do. He would always say, no, I haven't, even though he really did. But the reason why he did that was so that he wouldn't get experimented on again. And then when he met Stefan... Since he was kind of killing people who were healing, and he could heal. Well, Stefan wasn't killing people. Well, he was killing the parasites who were sort of healing people. Ditto didn't necessarily feel safe telling him that he could heal. And he doesn't trust Stefan in that way. Because he might think that Stefan might do something that might let him, that might lead him to do something with Ditto. 
Right, so Ditto has a big secret, and he doesn't trust his teammates enough to share that secret with them. And it winds up... So here we talk about trust, and the example that you've given is someone who Lack didn't have enough trust. He didn't trust that um, he, he could tell share his secret because, he first of all, he didn't... Ditto is similar to... I mean, well, they're all similar to Cosmo in that this is their only group of friends. So Ditto was afraid that if he shared the secret with them, that he would lose his only friends in the world. He was afraid that they might treat him differently and maybe stop being friends with him. So he didn't he didn't trust them to reveal that secret. But as we learn in, in Stefan's reaction, him keeping that secret wound up breaking the trust of Stefan, right? So Stefan had trusted him before that, but once Ditto, he's kind of forced to share his secret, Stefan then doesn't trust Ditto anymore. He's like, you've lied to me this whole time. And Stefan is blindsided and basically kicks Ditto out of the group for keeping the secret. So it's like the exact opposite. Like Ditto was trying to avoid something by by keeping the secret. But then when the secret finally gets out, that very thing he was trying to avoid ends up happening. Well, he doesn't necessarily kick him out. But what he does do is kind of avoid him. So, yeah. like, Mona and Cosmo still talk to him, I believe, but not Stefan. Well, I think what Stefan says is that he has to leave. Um, but the book doesn't continue on long enough for him to actually leave, because it's only, like, a day or maybe two days from the point that Ditto shares his secret to the end of the book. I think if Ditto had shared a secret earlier on in the book, we probably wouldn't have seen Ditto anymore. Unless he would have found some way to make amends with Stefan. Maybe he would have. But we find out later in the book something very sad happens. Yeah. That's an example of... Um, lack of trust. Lack of Well, yeah, lack of trust. Um, I think, like I said, one of the, the things that they, they do every night is is risk their lives. And it takes a lot of bravery to do that. But it also does take trust. And they do show... Um, significant amounts of trust in one another when they go out hunting for parasites. So they do have that going for them. And I think that's a good example of trust. showing trust. Uh, so do you have an example, personal example of uh, maybe where you trusted someone or someone broke your trust or anything like that? Yes. Okay. So I actually, whenever I'm learning a new skill in gymnastics and my coaches are spotting me, I have to be careful that my parents will be that my coaches won't drop me and I won't end up getting hurt. So that's like almost on an everyday basis. And I also have to trust myself because I have to trust myself that what I'm doing, I know how to do it correctly. And I have to trust myself to even attempt it. Uh, for myself, trust is, is huge. Um, Particularly when it comes to our relationship, I think trust is very important. Yeah. And I want you to be able to trust me, and I need to be able to trust you. Um, there have been examples where you've done some things that kind of impacted our trust, but you, you know, both negatively and positively. And maybe you can say the same about me, where maybe I've impacted um, your trust of me negatively or positively. No. I can't. <laughs> you can't. But I think one um, one good example where I trusted you with something and you came through would be the first time I let you walk around the store unsupervised. Where <laughs> you said you had to go to the bathroom. And I said, well, I could follow you into the bathroom, right? But I trusted that you would be able to make it there and make it back safely. And you did. <laughs> So I've been able to trust you to do that ever since. So I think that was one good example of of you. I don't even remember trust. that. Another important theme in this book is that of friendship and loyalty. Mm -hmm. We've already talked a little bit about that um, in regards to trust. But I think friendship and loyalty is important enough on its own right to be talked about separately. Um, so why, why do you think friendship is such an important theme in this book? Because we learn that Cosmo and 
Ditto and Mona and Stefan end up creating a bond and they end up sticking together and they ha- and they have a very strong friendship especially with Stefan and Ditto having a friendship together and kind of Cosmo and Dis- Ziploc which we learn was his friend that he escaped with I think friendship is particularly important for Cosmo because he grew up in an orphanage that didn't allow the children to be friends with each other. They tried to keep them separate as much as possible because they didn't want them to unite. Um, They didn't share rooms. They they actually didn't have rooms. They just had these pipes that were hanging from the rafters pretty much that each one occupied like this. Pretty much a cut that was big enough for each boy. And that was it. And and so this is how Cosmo has grown up. His, his entire life he spent in the orphanage. And when he meets the supernaturalists, He'd be getting he, their, gaining their friendship is really important to him. Because he's never had friends. Yeah, he's never had friends. He did have, as you mentioned, Ziploc was the closest thing he had to a friend at the Institute. But unfortunately, Ziploc passes away. and He and, didn't make the escape, sadly. Right. And so this new part of Cosmo's life that he's taking part in he's now got to if he doesn't he doesn't want to be alone in that world so he's he's looking for friends and the supernaturalists become that for him so I think that that's why it's really important it's because it's this growth and maturation of a boy who wasn't allowed to have friends and then how he goes about forging those friendships later on in life Um, and you actually I already mentioned a couple of good examples in the book Stefan and Ditto have been friends for a very long time. And Cosmo and Ziploc were friends at the Institute. Um, and Cosmo and Mona actually have an interesting bond, too. Yeah. That I was going to mention that, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, they maybe Cosmo wants it to be a little bit more than friends. But at this point... I think they both just, do. It's just a friendship at this point. I think they both do. Uh, what's a good example of, of friendship for you? Well... I've had lots of friends, but for me, me and my old friends had, at gym, I felt I was closer to them than I was to my friends at school, just surprising. (laughs) And I felt a lot like a team, and unlike Cosmo, I felt like I could actually create a relationship and a bond with them, and I did, because... We shared a lot of the same interests for specific people, and we ended up becoming friends, which was really happy for me because I kind of feel like an outcast at my last school, even though I had friends. I kind of felt like an outcast a little, like I didn't have that many friends, but I did. Yeah, I think um, you touch on something that's really important there is that, you know, we as humans, we're social creatures we're not loners we want to be around other people whether that's our family or our friends and um, whenever you find yourself in new social settings it's important that you're able to build those friendships Cosmo found himself in a, a new setting he had escaped the institute and now he was out in the world and he was able to find friends in the supernaturalists and I um, also similar to him I made friends with friends at my new school engine right so So you've you've been able to to forge hopefully good friendships and ones that will last i know i've had so far i have so far with my old friends i have been able to yeah i mean some of them (laughs) you're only 11 years old i can't say i've i have a friend that i've been friends with since i was 11 but I do have friends who I've known for what it seems like my entire life. And I think it's uh, important. It's really special when you're able to find those people friends that you can share your happy moments in your life with, your the sad, sad moments, moments, the friends that who will stick by you. Yeah, stick by you no matter what. That's a, a big part of the loyalty thing. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. I, I think that's, that's one of the, the, Reasons we watch that show, Girl Meets World, together. And I, I find that... Uh, <laughs> I love that show. 
And I was actually surprised that you liked it too. I mean, I think the show has some. We talk about we're talking about the themes of this book, but that show explores some really good, strong. And they can go very deep, too. Yeah, and one of the themes that they talk about quite frequently is that of friendship and finding the right friends, finding the right people to be around, because people change people, as it says in the the show. Which is a secret of life. So I think the same with this book and when we talk about us and our lives, you know, people change people, and it's important that you find good people to be around, find people that will... Will be as as they say, best friends forever, right? BFFs. Yeah. All right. One of the other themes that we talked about before that is also really important in this book is that of compassion, or lack of compassion. Yes. So, where do you think compassion or lack of compassion is shown in this book? Lack of compassion, as we've touched on before a little bit, are the orphanages. These orphanages kind of abuse these children to... They don't even care about them that much. They don't care that they live until they're only 15 normally. They don't really care about yeah, these people. Yeah, it seems like the orphanages don't... They don't treat the children like people. They treat them as... Slaves or property. Yeah, essentially. And yeah, that is definitely lack of compassion on the orphanage's part. I think... Like, it's good that they're giving them a home to stay when they don't have parents. But it's another thing to give them that home, but also make them work for you. I think Stefan shows a little bit of lack Lack? of compassion when Ditto reveals his secret. Yeah. Whereas Cosmo and Mona, Mona, they, they don't react nearly as harshly as Stefan does. Well, also, for Stefan and Ditto, they have known each other longer. And it was hard, it was probably hard for Stefan to know that. Because he thought that this is, that Ditto didn't keep anything from him. And he kind of felt betrayed. And I understand what he's feeling. And because of that, I understand why he would react so harshly, but. Absolutely. I would think that he would be able to forgive him. So Ditto was wrong in keeping the secret from Stefan for so long. But if Stefan was able to have some compassion for Ditto and try to understand why Ditto may have kept the secret from him, then that could have kept their bond stronger as opposed to Stefan had a very natural reaction. Like you said, he felt betrayed and he should have. Absolutely. When someone that you've known for so long, someone that you trust, someone that you love, um, reveals a secret to you that goes counter to everything you've stood for, then yeah, it's shocking. It's 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 hard to look at that person the same again. But in particular with, we know that Ditto is a Bartoli baby. And Bartoli babies, they get treated differently. And And so you have to show those people a little bit extra compassion. Because they're essentially experiments. Yeah, they've had a different type of life. The same with the orphans. The orphans need a little bit of compassion to show them, you know, what it means to love, what it means to have empathy and sympathy for, for others. But they don't receive any of that, unfortunately, at the Institute. Um, it's kind of a miracle that Cosmo is as balanced of a person as he is. You would think the situation that he's grown up in would almost drive you insane, but um, he's not. He's managed to to keep his humanity. And I know this particular theme is is kind of hard to find in your own life, but can you think of any instances um, where lack of compassion, maybe not you personally, but someone else in your life didn't have compassion for you or maybe one of your friends? Not that I know of. Now that I can remember, I might, but I don't believe so. And I'm pretty glad about that because I don't want people to not feel loved and not feel like they have people to support them. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I think we've done a good job of surrounding ourselves with good people. And so we we don't experience this lack of compassion on a normal basis. So it's tough to find examples of it in our own personal lives which yeah. is fine which actually it's a good it's thing. good 
So another set of themes that are really important to this book are less personal themes. The ones that we've talked about thus far are really personal and they're about characterization and and uh, character traits of people. But these other themes deal more with the world and how the world is treated and specifically um, the world that Owen Colfer has created in The Supernaturalist. We talked about early on how it's a dystopian future, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways that this world has become dark is due to the pollution. And I think pollution, yeah, pollution is such a huge theme in this book. It kind of bases around the world that they live in from pollution. Yeah, so it impacts the world that they live in. And I think pollution it, it even goes down to a smaller level. We'll, we'll get into it. But what do you think is a good example of pollution? I in, have in one book? right in my mind. All right, go I ahead. Two. The skies are very different colors. They're not sky blue. They can be sky blue. They can be purple. They can be red. They can be pink. They can be any color. And also, because of pollution and rain, and the rain is a lot harder, they cannot use a regular umbrella because that will pretty much just, this, the rain will just destroy the umbrella, essentially. Yeah, the rain has basically become like hail. pebbles. Yeah, essentially hail all the time as opposed to raindrops. Uh, yeah, so that's pollution has changed this world so drastically that the sky is not blue consistently blue that the rain is not soft um it's just a vastly different world that they live in not only are those examples of pollution but uh the parasites mm -hmm. so i thought about this just now so we'll see let me see if we can run with this a little bit so the parasites take in energy when they have taken in too much energy they burst and split into more parasites so that right there is an example of them being a, a potential source of energy and maishi corp wants to take advantage of the parasites to use them as an energy source right so specifically of one of them one of the members of maishi corp right Yes, that while the person who's leading the, the charge, the, the face of Maishi Corp as we know it, is actually Stefan's old mentor from the police academy. Ellen Faustino. Right, and she, she turns out to be one of the antagonists of the book. There are many, um, but she's kind of this driving force behind a lot of the action in this book. She's a bad person, though. We'll talk, I mean... It, she used to be a good person. She high so we talked about trust and Faustino is a person who tries to take advantage of the trust of Stefan's trust, right? Mm -hmm. Stefan has looked at upon her as a mentor, has looked upon her uh, for guidance and for leadership, but we find that she's just taking advantage of him and, and using him. And we even learn that she's responsible for his mother's death. She is? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, not a good person at all. I don't think she was ever, ever. a good person, but she kind of put on the, the facade of being a good person so that she could use Stefan for... Um, her own purposes. Her own her own ends. Yeah. Do you have an example of pollution? In our world? Either in, yes. in our world or in your own life? Yes. Yeah. Pollution well, in our world, obviously. Obviously, there's, there's pollution in our world. Because of all the factories and people smoking and cigarettes, it pollutes the air. Yeah, so I think what Owen Colfer is saying is that if we don't con start controlling the pollution, we might wind up with the world like that in The Supernaturalist, where rain is deadly and mm. the sky isn't blue. Can you imagine what that does to people's moods? Like seeing the sky change color or like, you know, it's such a great feeling when there's clear skies and this sunny day and the sky is blue, right? That makes you feel good. Makes me feel happy. Imagine if you were to wake up and it's not blue, it's red. 
makes me feel angry. Yeah, so it would. I'm sure it impacts people's moods. So um, angry or hungry. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> red make whenever I see red, it makes me hungry. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a personal example of pollution helping with our pollution problem. No. I used to actually. I, I mean, I used to do a much better job of recycling. And, you know, when I was a kid, we used to take um, soda cans to the mm-hmm. recycler and, and and make sure that they get recycled. Now they have services that come around and pick up your recycling. Unfortunately, where we live now, they don't do that. So, and I, well, here's here's why I'm contributing. I stopped drinking soda. <laughs> so there's no more waste. I don't have the, the cans or the, the bottles of like, waste anymore. So I guess like I'm inadvertently helping... Not intentionally, not intentionally, but we are. I mean, that's a byproduct of me not drinking soda is that I'm not adding to that type of waste in the environment. So ah, that's a good one, I guess. Another theme that I don't even know if Colfer was trying to to talk about this theme, but it one is. that I recognized is he, he, he hints at overpopulation. Yes. And I think this is important in this book because... The reason why there is a parasite problem, if there is one at all, is because the parasite population within Satellite City has grown to this massive proportion. Yeah. And so one thing we know about the parasites is that they're supposed to only feed off of dying people. They even mentioned that in the beginning of the book, but then they say... But then something changed. And... But as the parasite population grows and the supernaturalists are unknowingly contributing to the growth of the parasite population, um, their natural food source, we'll call it. Their, energy source. Their natural energy source. There isn't enough to no. feed the entire population of parasites. So then the parasites have to start looking for other sources of energy. And so where at, at first the parasites are only feeding off of dying humans. Then they had to start feeding off of any injured human. And if the they were the population were to continue to grow, they'd have to feed off of healthy humans. And obviously that's not good for humans. It, but if their population had been maintained at a more reasonable level, then they would only feed off of dying humans. And we learn that the parasites aren't actually killing people. They're just pain taking relievers. away their pain. And so if you're dying... And they come in and ease your pain as you're about to die. And that's all that they're doing. Of course, the supernaturalists think, think that they're killing, killing people, them. but they're they're not. And they and we also learn that you cannot kill the parasites. That's right. Now well that's why the population of the parasites has grown. grows to an, this uncontrollable level. Because you because can't kill them. In order to get rid of the parasites, what the supernaturalists were doing was shooting them with, like, these um, electric bolts, pretty much, right? Which gives them energy. So as... Lightning rods. Right, they're using, yeah, they're using lightning rods to shoot them. The lightning rods, all the lightning rods were doing was putting in... A Extra energy. ton of energy into the parasites. It would cause the parasites to reach a combustible level. They would explode, but then they would... S- the, the from the pieces of the explosion, more parasites would grow, and so they were only contributing to the parasite population. They being the supernaturalists, they weren't reducing the population, which they're trying to do. They're trying to get rid of the parasites because they thought it was the right thing to do. Because hey, if you think parasites are killing people, then you try to get rid of them. Yeah, and if you're the only ones who can see the parasites. Obviously, you're going to try and contribute to... Then you try... You're the only one who can help. Yeah. And that's what the supernaturalists were doing. That was their mission, and it was a good cause. They just didn't have enough information. We talked about compassion, and compassion, interestingly enough, would have helped the supernaturalists learn more about the parasites. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then find a better solution than shooting them with these lightning rods. Unfortunately, that's the the tack that they they took, and they wound up creating a problem. Um, do you have a personal example of op- overpopulation? That's it's kind of hard to have personal examples of of these themes. Like, mm, 
No, but... Well, maybe the world might be having too many babies. So, because there's so many, they might not be able to supply all of these people. Yeah, that's a tricky one. So, in I don't our, think so, but... In our world today, we're actually like... Um, kind of like the parasites where our population is growing faster than people are dying. So that's why now I think there's how many billions of people in this world. But you have to consider that the world only has so many resources to keep people alive. And so if we outgrow the world, we, we could have a problem potentially. I don't know if we reach that point of oversaturation yet. Not yet. Um, I don't believe so. Uh, and I'm not sure what we can do about it. But with modern science, you know, where people are living longer, which is why. Why are people living longer, though? Well, because we have better medicine. True. Right before the life expectancy was like 40. <laughs> now people live. The average life is probably 75 or something like that. Maybe even older than that now. And, uh, you know, because we have we have better medicine, we have better cures. Uh, surgical procedures and all sorts of things that that help keep people alive longer which is good i mean it's good to have a longer life but when you're producing more yeah there's when you're reproducing more than it's hard to keep everyone alive all right what's the next theme the next theme is corruption and i think again that this um this theme is important to this book because we see corruption at Maishi Corp. the corporate level, and we see corruption at the institution. Mm -hmm. um, the institution is actually a really good example of corruption because with orphanages in our world, they're typically government funded. In the supernaturalist, corp the, the orphanages have to raise money on their own. And so they've allowed them that to corrupt the good sense of an orphanage, right? Which is to take care of abandoned children. That right there, like you would think is a good thing, but because the orphanages need to find ways to earn money, it wound up corrupting them. So they end up using the boys in these dangerous tests because they'd get paid for it. So I think that's uh, a, a good example of corruption in this book. Can you think of any other examples of corruption in this book? Maishi. How is Maishi corrupt? Well, can you exactly explain it to me again? Can I? No, well, this May is your you? example. Can you explain it? Well, for me, corruption is kind of... I don't act exactly understand corruption. <laughs> And I know we looked this up yesterday, but I can't remember what it said. So corruption is dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power, typically oh. involving bribery. Oh, yes. Because these satellites are, because Maishi Corp, specifically Ellen, she, well, she's kind of abusing her power by, like, wanting to use the parasites as energy. Right, so uh, Ellen Faustino is a person in power, and she's using the weight of the Maishi Corporation to... Um, do what she wants to do. Yeah, do what she wants to do. She's Her her goal is to use these parasites to fund another... Or not fund, but to power another satellite. And, and she knows that by doing so, she'll probably make lots of money and receive lots of accolades. Um, but in order to get there, she's taking advantage of Stefan and the supernaturalists. She's doing things, um, even within the Maishi Corp that are like off the books. How? Well, the whole parasite experiments that she's running, she says they're off the books that, you know, the, the corporation doesn't know what she's doing. So she's, she's allowed that to corrupt her. Um, money. Yeah, we know that money is, is well, as we'll talk about next, the greed is, is corrupting the entire corporation. Uh, so, yeah, those, that's a good example of, of all of that. Now, again, 
it's difficult to find personal examples of these themes. But do you know anybody who you would say has been corrupted? No? No. I don't think I've known anybody personally either. I think this is a very strong personal opinion and a lot of people may not agree with me. I think the NCAA is a corrupt organization. How? Because they're supposed to be looking out for the interests of student athletes. But what they end up doing, in my opinion, is using those athletes to make money while not sharing any of that money with the athletes themselves. Sure. So, and they're not allowed to have a second job. No, they. it's expressly written in the rules that those athletes will lose scholarship if they take money from any other source. So they're not allowed Even to... Even their parents? Probably not their parents, but if their parents take money from something else, I mean, that, that could be considered a violation. So they have so many rules in place to keep these athletes from making any kind of money, yet they make billions of dollars off of the athletes. So I think they're a corrupt organization. That would be my personal example. Uh, I feel very strongly about it, and we don't want to get too deep into that discussion because I can talk forever about it. The last theme that I want to talk about today, Kalia, is greed. And we touched on a little bit with Maishi Corporation. I think this is an important theme in the book because greed, when greed becomes the motivating factor, you wind up not doing what's right. Yeah. Uh, you mind people eat. end up doing bad things just to get money because of what they want. Right. We talked about Ellen Faustino and the company she works for. I think Faustino is definitely motivated by greed as well as the corporation because... For money. The, yeah, these satellite cities, one of the things that uh, Faustino says at the end of the book is that they have these contracts to build more satellite cities. And in order to fulfill those contracts, they're willing to you know, kill people and and uh, destroy other people's lives and do all types of crazy things. And so that go- corporation, the corruption and greed kind of go hand in hand. Are there any other? Any other what? Examples of greed? In this book? I think those are the, that's, that's the biggest one. Um, I don't believe so. Do you have an, a personal example of greed? No. Well, actually, yes, overeating. Yeah, I think we all kind of have a little bit of greed in us. Now, it's a matter of how much we allow that greed to affect our decisions and affect our behavior. Um, But one of the small ones that I think that we all get a little greedy when it comes to food, (laughs) because something might taste so good that we want to have more of it and more of it and more of it. But ultimately, that could be bad for us, right? So overeating, that's a small example of greed, but it happens. It's all right, though, as long as we were able to recognize that, hey, we're overeating and we should stop. So uh, do you have any other thoughts about this book, Kalia? Like, uh, would you recommend this book to your other friends? Yeah. Yeah? If they're into this type of, these types of books, like sci-fi books, I don't know many friends who are into sci-fi. Most of my friends are into fantasy and those types of books this book has fantasy but not the type of books that they would normally read so what type of person would you recommend this book to if i didn't read it with you i'd probably recommend it to you why what like what type of person am i that you would recommend it for me because i know the books that you have read or i know that you enjoy reading sci-fi books and i know that you enjoy the Artemis Fowl series. So because these books are similar in a way and because it, this, those books are written by the same person, I would recommend this to you because I knew that you like sci-fi. I think I would recommend this book to someone who might be in a situation that they think they can't get out of. Someone who's looking for a little bit of inspiration. I think this story about Cosmo escaping the institution and finding his way in the world, I mean, he's never been exposed to um, anything outside. So he's essentially been sheltered his entire life. So I would recommend this book to to anybody who's looking for, who I think could use that sort of inspiration. Um, I would recommend it to people who like action, because there's a ton of action in this book. And... um, 
as we've mentioned with a lot of these books, it's a coming of age story, and it's a pretty good coming of age story. So people who like those types of stories, I a lot of our books, a lot of the books that we read are coming of age. Yeah. What do you feel about the book? What's your favorite part in the book? I think my favorite part in the book is when Cosmo is on his first outing with the supernaturalists, and he has to they, the supernaturalists in order to like go between buildings they use these ladders bridges and he has to find he has to figure out how to work one of these things in almost a life and death situation because they're being chased and so he has to to figure out how to put one down and so i think that moment showed a lot of courage a lot of we talked about bravery a lot of strength and just you know believing in yourself and i think his teammates the other supernaturalists showed a lot of faith and trust in him in that moment to say, Cosmo, we need you to do this or else we're all going to get caught. So I liked that moment. I also have another question for you. Okay. Because I know that in one of the other books I've read, which is One Crazy Summer, you felt like there's a little bit of romance that you didn't really feel was necessary. Do you feel like the little tiny bit of romance was necessary in this book and did you like it i didn't think there was romance in this book at all to be honest with you there's a little bit at the end i think you feel like there was some romance because you're hypersensitive to that stuff right now at this age and you're look you know anytime they mention that a boy is looking at a girl with a certain way or a, a girl compliments a boy or vice versa you're like yeah. ooh. You, yeah, you do. I hear you giggling no, anytime you, know why? you see something like that on TV. Or you anything. know why? Why? Because Mona ends up kissing, well, no, Cosmo ends up kissing Mona. That's why. Uh, I mean, I think in this situation it was far more natural than it was in the other book that we read. One of the problems I had with the romance in that book. One Crazy Summer. One Crazy Summer was that the character wasn't developed at all. Hyoto. Like the the relationship between the two characters wasn't like I didn't know know it well enough in order to be like, oh okay, this is natural. It just seemed like it was kind of shoved in there. This to me it felt more organic. You know, Mona is someone who plays a, a big role in Cosmo's growth in this book. You know, they had that whole night where they went out and um Mona took him to uh, the bash. Oh, the the what's it called? The race. Uh, well, she takes him over to get parts for their car into that district where there's lots of gangs, and so you know they kind of go through a unique situation together. Well, also Mona was actually from there with that too. Right. The tattoo. So I, I mean, I I felt stronger about Mona as a character, and so the fact that Mona and Cosmo wound up being attracted to one another. One another, it. I wasn't as annoyed. Annoyed's a good word for it. Yeah, I wasn't as annoyed by it in this book. And it was such a small, like small bit. Small bit. It was smaller than that. In it's smaller than the romance in One Crazy Summer. It wasn't important to the story. You know, it's just there. They tried to make more of a deal out of it in One Crazy Summer, which I didn't understand why that was necessary. you have any other questions? No. All right, so that's going to wrap up our conversation on Owen Colfer's Supernaturalist. I, um, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. And we hope that you join the conversation by going to our website, fatherdaughterbookclub.com. And subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast so that you can listen to us when we post normally on Wednesdays. Yeah, we try to get an episode out every Wednesday, and we typically split our discussions into two episodes, so that way you have time to read the book and then get caught up and yeah, and join the conversation. You can join the conversation however you see fit. Um, if you don't have a podcast app, you can subscribe to us via email. And, and get notified via email whenever we post up a new episode. So do that again at fatherdaughterbookclub.com. So the next book that we'll be reading is called The Skin I'm In 
by Sharon G. Flake. So make sure you go to your local library or your local bookstore and pick up a copy of The Skin I'm, I'm In, in by, by Sharon G. G. Flake. So We look forward to discussing that together and with you. So join us next time on the Father Daughter Book Club. Bye. Bye. Dun 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 d